Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am speaking with educator, author, and fellow Oakland native, Carolina Ixta. She is here to talk about her debut young adult novel, Shut Up, This is Serious. It is a witty social commentary set in East Oakland and was shaped by Carolina's own experiences as a critical race theory educator. The story follows Belen and Leti, best friends and daughters of working class Mexican immigrants during their senior year of high school. Today, I talk with Carolina about racism and sex and how they both show up throughout this novel and other YA books. We also discuss acknowledgement sections and, of course, our love of Oakland. Don't forget, our book club pick for January is Erasure by Percival Everett. I will be discussing that novel with Zach Stafford on Wednesday, January 31st. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. Everybody, you know what's up. It's a new year and it is a perfect time to join the Stacks Pack at patreon.com slash the Stacks. That is our community over on Patreon for people who like the show and want more bookish fun in their lives. When you join, you earn perks like our virtual book club and access to our Discord channel. Plus, you get access to our brand new mega reading challenge that is a 52 book challenge that has prompts like read a book under 200 pages, read a book that is in translation from an author outside of Europe, and revisit a book that you were assigned in high school. It's a really fun, challenging way to expand your reading. And if you join the Stacks Pack right now until the end of January, you also get access to the Stacks Reading Tracker. It is an incredible tool to help you see what you've read and help you reach your reading goals. Also, you get to know that by joining the Stacks Pack, you are supporting this podcast and making it possible for me to make the show every single week. It's super easy. You go to patreon.com slash the stacks. You can join for as little as $5 a month. And you'll know that I love you forever for helping make my bookish dreams come true. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Sarah Dunham, Sarah Applegate, Aaron L. Issa, Devin R., Elizabeth Fromer, Ann Bennett, Stephanie, and Jocelyn Lopez. Thank you all for joining the Stacks Pack. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for existing and making my life a better place. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Carolina Insta. All right, everybody. I'm really excited today. I'm getting to talk with an author of a brand new YA novel called Shut Up, This is Serious. The book takes place in my hometown of Oakland, California, which is always thrilling, as you know. Carolina Ixta, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you, a fellow Oakland girly. We always start here in about 30 seconds or so. Can you tell us about the book? Oh, this book follows a girl named Belen Dolores Itzel del Toro, long name, who is just (laughs) struggling with her father's departure. At the same time, her best friend named Leti is pregnant and Belen kind of thinks, you know, it'd be perfect if I just distract myself from my own grief by helping other people and doing other things until she realizes that distractions really, they only work for a limited time and has to really confront what she's been through. Yes. 
I really enjoyed this book. I had so much fun with the girls and I had so much fun with Oakland. And Mm -hmm. I just like, there's a part in the book where they go to a party at Cal, uh, UC Berkeley. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but because you grew up in Oakland, right? I did. Yeah. I did that. Like, that's what I did in high school. We would go to like frat row and go to those parties. And I just like kept, as I was reading the book, I kept just like giggling at all of the little things that that happen. And I'm just like, I, I want to start with Oakland because that's like the, yeah. the, the center of me. Why, how did you think about making Oakland sort of a character in the book? I started writing this book when I was an undergrad. I went to UC Santa Cruz and um, I think like I've thought about this question quite a bit. I think I was just very homesick. Um, Mm. Santa Cruz is like an hour and a half from the Bay. It's really not far, but it's for those who know, like it's different. You're in the middle of a forest (laughs) at the beach. Like there's no diversity. There's no drive throughs. Like it's just such a weird (laughs) little beach town. And I was really homesick and I was thinking about like growing up as a kid and being in Fruitvale. And so I knew that when I started writing, I had to set my uh, stories in Oakland in college. All of my stories, all of my stories were set in Mm. East Oakland. I was just so homesick. Um, And I could come home my senior year every weekend. So my senior year of college, I was home every weekend. (laughs) And um, that's where I was like, man... I'll get to this some, some day. Like I was writing all of these short stories, they weren't working. And I think all the time I spent back in Oakland, my senior year, and then moving back um, mm-hmm. for graduate school, cause I went to Cal was everything I needed to be like, okay, this is exactly what I want to do. And I wanted to characterize Oakland very realistically of like, it's my favorite place in the world. It's beautiful. It's dangerous at times. It's gritty at times, but mainly I wanted to categorize it as like, what I think is the best city in the world, only rivaled by New York. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, do, will you ever live outside of Oakland again? I've thought about that. I don't know. I used to be like confidently, no, like this is mm-hmm. where I belong. I've thought about moving recently where I've been like, I don't feel like there's anything specifically tying me to the Bay Area. So I don't know, maybe one day, but not right now. Okay. Okay, we'll talk about the book now. I just had to get the Oakland stuff out of the way, though I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there'll be other things where I'll be like, oh my God, this Oakland thing. Um, so this is a YA novel, but one of the things that I personally really loved as a non-young adult, as a full-fledged adult, I guess, with a young mm-hmm. personality, is that there's a lot of sex in this book. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about that, I guess, both from a publishing standpoint, like if you received pushback about that, if if you struggled about how much you could put in or not put in. Because I was always told when I first got into doing the show, I would ask, like, what's the difference between YA and adult? And a lot of people would be like, sex. Like, if mm. it gets to sex, then that becomes adult. Like, if the young people start having sex, it basically becomes an adult book. And if not, it can stay in the YA world. But your book, mm-hmm. like, not only talks about sex because there's a pregnancy, but also talks about, like, casual sex and, like, losing your virginity mm-hmm. in the not, like, love of my life, we're going to get married yeah. way, in the, like, I want to yeah. fuck kind of way. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering about that. But I'm also, I'm also wondering, I guess, about audience because a lot of things mm-hmm. I've read recently is that, like, young people are not into sex in media. Like there's too much sex in movies. There's too much sex in TV shows. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you were thinking about that at all, because I've also heard that for young people, maybe that it's like, they're just not into gratuitous sex or like unnecessary sex, but the sex in this book feels like deeply tied to the plot. So I guess we're just starting with sex. So (laughs) yeah. Um, yes, I think there's been a lot of sticky conversations around sex and YA recently. I was mentored through writing this book by my fantastic like godmother of a person. Her name is Raquel Vasquez-Gilliland. She wrote How Moon Fuentes Fell in Love with the Universe, which won the Pura Belper Award a couple of years ago. And that book has a lot of sex in it. And when I, it was the first time I'd read YA where she's like, being like, I'm having sex to have fun. People call me a slut. I like being with this guy. I like being with that guy. And it's really about her coming to terms with her own sexuality. Mm. And so I read that and I was like, wow, I I feel like we've made some progress. But conversely, I remember um, every book I'd read as a young person that had sex in it was always narrated through the vantage point of a boy. 
Like I remember the first time I read Looking for Alaska and the kid gets a, a blowjob and the book is banned, I think mainly for that reason. And John Green has talked, you know, extensively about how like it's, it was meant to be an uncomfortable moment. I think that happened in like, either it's kind of a funny story by Ned Mazzini, like that was the YA I grew up reading, Mm -hmm. but it was always narrated from the perspective of boys. And then Mm. when I would read YA narrated by the perspective of young women at that time, which was like the 2010s, nothing, there was nothing. And then Mm. I returned to YA in like 2018. And there had been this renaissance in my laps of reading, where I was suddenly reading like the poet X, and I am not your perfect Mexican daughter, all and I read um, Yoke by Mary H.K. Choi, where (sighs) I think she has I love her. She's so cool. Um, I read her book. And she has this really interesting scene where she like, sleeps with this guy who's like, super hot. And um, she's like, I almost came. And I was like, that's a great sentence because that's so real. And um, so I was thinking like, okay, I want to write about sex. I want to have this like, what is the thing? Virgin Madonna kind of uh, dichotomy of like, but it's it's switched. The best friend who's so Catholic, who's so like such a nerd is pregnant. Belen, who would represent like the stereotypical trope of a voluptuous, sexy, hot Latina. is like, I just want to fuck someone. I don't care. Like... I don't have to be in love. I'm just trying to get this shit over with um, and ends up in a really, what I would say is an unsafe situation. But I wanted young women to walk away from the book being like virginity is something that is so false. And also like when I was growing up, like I said, every virgin virginity scene was like, and he's the love of my life. And yes. I'm like, really? You know, you're like 16 <laughs> years old. Give it two, three years. Like, I, I hope you break up. And I just wanted girls to be like, wow, I can have sex and it doesn't have to be with the love of my life. Should it be with some weird guy who is older than me? Probably not. But like, not. <laughs> yeah, actually, definitely not. Let me say that. But um, I wanted to have that in the book. I was worried there was more visceral scenes not just I don't think this is a spoiler at all but she gives a blowjob in the book and earlier in in drafts it was a a descriptive thing okay my editor did not say anything she's so great she was like whatever you feel she needs to say you can say when we were on sub I do remember though uh one of the folks who I ended up not signing with when I asked about like hey what would your vision for the book be their specific feedback was just about like your protagonist gets ogled by men too much, like to the point that it's distracting. And I said, Mm. Oh, like we cannot work together because that was the point of the book, you know, to discuss how she's overly sexualized um, and struggles with that herself. Um, It was hard, but I, I think the market is ready. The one thing I did hesitate about, which, you know, people on the internet live sometimes on the internet. I'd see these discourses on Twitter and I've hopped off. I've hopped off book Twitter and publishing Twitter because I'm just like, oh my god, this is an echo chamber um, yeah. of older folks, like adults, saying any sex in YA is like child pornography. And I was like, oh my god, are you guys crazy? Like there are yeah. teen girls and teen boys who are having sex, and to speak to the crux of the novel, not discussing sex with your teen kids can lead them to get pregnant or to have these like really unsafe sexual um, encounters. So I muted those because I was like, this is just not real teen young people are having sex. And I think they need to have an author or an adult as a teacher, like explain to them, Hey, like this is what happens. This is what can happen. And often not explaining those things can lead us to some really sticky situations. And I think also when I think back to myself, like being a young person and reading. I read a lot of adult stuff because a lot of young people stuff didn't speak to the things that I was like interested or curious about. And like, I'm just just remembering like the only book I can think of that I read as a young person that's like YA ish that had sex in it was go ask Alice. And that Mm -hmm. was like a very traumatic sex situation. It was like, like it was very clearly like, well, I definitely don't want that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can't think of any like good depictions of sex or like because one of the things about Belen is that she while she does have like this relationship with this older guy that is not safe like there is she is in control 
in a sense. Like it's something that she has at least like gone for. I think it gets out of control for her for sure. But like it is not something that happens to her. Like it's Mm -hmm. not something that she's not, you know, pursuing. And I really found that powerful because like you're saying, like there's just not that many depictions or there weren't when we were coming up though, I'm much older than you, like that allowed for young girls to be like to have autonomy over their own bodies and their virginities and those things. And so both of the girls have, you know, sex, sex encounters that they at least are at at the start enthusiastic about. Totally. Yeah. I think Belen, and I, I won't spoil it for folks who haven't read it. She learned some information about her sexual partner, which I think to many would be like the, Hey, no more, no more. You know, like I've learned what I needed to learn and I got to go. And the most interesting part with writing her was, was me saying she's going to make a choice to continue doing this. And it's going to come from a place of a lot of deep, deep hurt and a lot of wounds that I think someone who's not privy to like a healing journey or understanding young people is very complex would be like, Oh my God, what a slut. She's crazy. But I was like, the whole point is to to say, like, she is making a choice. Is it the correct choice? I don't know. Right. And she'll grow to get there. But we have to see her through that very raw, real growth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, again, like what makes the book really special and like what makes the what made the book for me as an adult, like also enjoy it is because I felt like she was in control and that like you weren't trying to like teach us a lesson, which is something that I really hate because I remember being young and authors like trying to like make a point and me being like, yeah, bitch, I fucking know. Like abstinence is the best. Like, right. Like it's like, okay, (laughs) thank you. So I like that, that this book, like I, I would feel excited to give it to a young person, but I also like felt excited and I like read it in two days because I was like, great, this is stuff that I'm like, I don't feel weird reading about it, but I also don't feel annoyed that it's like so precious. Like I just, I, that's like the one thing I hate about some YA is like, it's so precious and it's so preachy. And I just, as a young person, I didn't like being spoken to that way. And I'm glad that like, you're not speaking to your readers that way. And I, and I guess part of that is because you're, you are a teacher and you work with young people. And so I'm wondering like, did your students, like conversations that you've had with your students or just like your relationships with your students, did that help you to understand like how far you could push and how like to avoid some of those like precious traps? Yes. So I was a fifth grade teacher for a long time. My first class is now in high school. So it's really interesting Mm. to be like, oh my God, you couldn't read this book. And we're going to have really interesting conversations. But Uh, teaching that grade level, I had to teach sex ed. And I have this really progressive curriculum around, you know, the inclusion of queer folks and trans folks. So great. But, you know, I had to speak about sex very, um, I don't know, politically to say like, this is what happens when you get pregnant. This is what happens when you get a period. But when I took sex ed, and I think it was written in the book, it was taught as something that was very precious of like, well, you just don't want to have sex with anybody you could get pregnant. Um, Like such a, there was a consequence around um, exploring sex. In the grade level I taught, I couldn't say that, but I approached teaching about sex and my friends laugh at me all the time about it, but I was like, you got to give it to them straight up. Like just give it to them for real. This is what happens. This is what an STD is. This is what pregnancy is. This is what a penis is. This is a diagram of a vagina. We're not using any fake flowery terms around this. We're not using any nicknames. This is it. And I would love to say that all teachers do that, but they don't. Even in, you know, today, some teachers just skip the sex ed unit because it's so much easier to. I teach 100% Latino kids. And so my history, I'm like, uh, I'd say 95% of us in this room right now are Catholic. And you know what Catholics don't do? We don't talk about sex. So (laughs) if I don't tell you that this is what's going to happen, literally nobody might. There are so many girls I've had in my classroom who are like, I think I got my period. What's a period? What do I do? Because their mothers won't sit down because we have such a shamey culture about it where I'm like, okay, I'm the adult in the the room right now. Like, okay, this is what you have to do. You're okay. Everything's fine. But I did think about that. And I was like, you know, even in the first chapter, I was like, I have to give it to them straight up. The girl is pregnant. She wanted to have sex with the guy. Now it's a whole race issue. 
but it did it. The whole book was colored by my perspective as a teacher, not only around sex, but when I thought about my young female students who I'm like, oh my God, I'm, they're like having their quinceañeras right now. I'm just so protective of them where I'm like, what could I wish I could have told you that I couldn't mm. tell you because I can't, because it's not in a curriculum, because it's not appropriate. I wish I could tell you, don't talk to that guy. I wish I could tell you, run, like run as fast as you can. Also, like if you want to have sex, go ahead, just please do it safely. Those are all things I wish I could have said but I couldn't that I was like, you know what, I can put this in the book. um, And hopefully they can, they can get it. So another thing that you just alluded to, and that I found really fascinating with this book was like the discussion about anti-black racism, um, specifically in these Mexican American communities, Mm -hmm. specifically in Leti's family. Um, Leti is the the gal who gets pregnant. She's like this Mm -hmm. straight A student, extremely Catholic family. Um, and I also love that she's one who gets pregnant because it like subverts the idea of like who gets pregnant, like that it's like only the bad girls or like the slutty girls can get pregnant right. and like not in this case. Um, but I'm curious sort of how, again, how you were thinking about talking about this stuff and like how you were th- like, how how can you teach this to your reader without like that preachy feeling? Yeah, um, the book kind of took over me when I started writing it, like I wrote the first line and the rest kind of just came around. Mm. Like, I guess she's pregnant by like her black boyfriend. What would happen? I was like, what would happen in a Latino family if we came home with a biracial baby that was half black? It would not be good. We have a big problem like in our culture. And I learned that being a teacher, I learned that in my family. Like there's a scene where like in early where Leti's mom, like, turns her hands over and is like oh my god I wish she was this light I've seen that happen in my family so often Mm. me as like a white Latina my sister like looks like a black Latina and we have the same parents it's just interesting how that happens my life was so easy like Mm. everyone was like you look like a little porcelain doll you know and I you know have all the privilege because of it and I became a teacher and the first thing that happened I teach bilingual students. So I teach in Spanish. A lot of the time there's the Spanish class and then there's the English only pathway. So the English only pathway had all of the black students and all of the Asian students and everybody else really strange segregated system. And, um, my first year teaching within the first two, three days of school, I heard things coming out of my students' mouths that I was like, where did you learn that word about black classmates? And I'd sit down with their parents and be like, okay, you know, so-and-so said this about so-and-so we have to have a conversation and parents would very much be like, what's the problem? And I was like, Oh, I see, you know? Um, And so I was reminded that racism is really taught, right? Like these kids don't come out of their parents' houses, just knowing this language or these terms, very advanced terms, very advanced comparisons. It's what they're hearing at home. Right. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher, I was like, all right, we have to have this curriculum um, around this. And I turned to the learning for justice standards around it. And I really thought, and I hope this doesn't come off as like a martyr, heroic teacher narrative, because that's not how I feel. I feel like I'm just doing my job. But I was like, if I don't teach them about this, I truly don't think anybody will. Mm -hmm. They might have to go through what I went through, which is going to university, paying exorbitant amounts of tuition, um, going into fat, fat debt to understand things about um, mestizaje and colorism and anti-Black racism in our communities. And some of them truly may never do that. Like they may never go and learn these terms because no one might, might teach them. So I found it to be my actual job to do that. Um, and so when I wrote the book, as I was teaching my students about this, I was like, well, I'd like to teach readers about this in a way that feels organic. Um, I'd read and I've, I read a lot of YA about Latina girls. And it's always, and I don't mean that this is no discredit because I'm like, I, I truly feel like I stand on the shoulder of lots of giants, but it's truly about how the world is so cruel to Mexican people. I'll speak in the Mexican specifically, but I'm like, yo, we're so fucked up sometimes. Mm. And growing up in Fruitvale, I see it often where I'm like, it's a dense immigrant community and we're just trying to make ends meet. But like a black person walks by and we're like clutching our purse. Like, what are we Mm. doing? Um, So I really wanted to speak about that in a way that felt normal. And so I thought Leti 
represents a lot of my family. Her family represents a lot of my family, a lot of my friends' families of like, not only do we wish you weren't so dark, now you're having a baby with a black man. What are you doing? And it's interesting because, you know, I think the culture around biracial children in the U.S., like I think about when Northwest was born, for example, and how everyone was pitting her against Blue Ivy saying like, oh my God, Blue Ivy is so ugly. And I was like, does, does nobody realize that this is profoundly racist and super yeah. fetishy? You know, having a mixed race baby in the U.S., usually with a white person is like, oh, what a cute kid. And in like Latino communities, you have a mixed race baby with a black person. And it's like, what have you done? Like you, you like disparaging our community. So um, I wanted to speak about that because I'm like, I'm sure lots of readers have this experience mm -hmm. um, or I'm sure lots of readers are observant of the experience and don't know what to do. Mm. Um, so it was the, the, the biggest thing I wanted to discuss in the book. It's interesting that you say that about like, like having like a black person and a white person having a kid versus like a black person and a Mexican person having a kid, because there's definitely white communities that are like, Totally. Don't fuck up the bloodline also. Um, it's just, you know, anti-blackness for sure. I mean, I say that as through a mixed person, but also a mixed person from the Bay Area who was born in the 80s, which was like a very yeah. end time to be a mixed person in, in Oakland. Mm -hmm. It was and big it's funny vibes. how that happens, right? Like, yeah. it's just funny how that happens. But no, you're, you're totally correct. It's just such a strange culture where I'm like, yeah. man, this is so weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think in the book, you talk about it a little bit of like, like in Mexican communities, there's this sense, well, like we have been shit on by so many people. So like we can't totally. be racist or like we can't shit on other people because like, have you seen how we've been treated? And I, I really appreciated that perspective because it does sort of like not humanize the racism, but it does like help to shed light. Cause I, I mean, there's so much in the black community, there's so much colorism and like anti-blackness in the black community as well. And I think sometimes it's hard to understand why or how that could happen. But even just as simply as you kind of put it in the book, which is like, Letty's dad doesn't think he can be racist because he's been shit on and like treated badly and has had a hard go of things. And like, I just, I, I thought that was really like, an e like not an easy, but like a, a quick way to like illustrate a lot, a lot, a lot of history. Yeah. And shit. I think, you know, the, tr the election in 2016 shed a lot of light on that for me of like, yeah, obviously like specifically Mexican people dragged through the mud by the Trump administration, rapists, like drug traffickers, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, that's, it's untrue. It's awful. But the response I saw from my community was to somehow dig their heels into like, we are oppressed and so we don't oppress others. And I'm like, yeah, really? Like we have actually a large migration issue in Mexico. Mexicans are so, so discriminatory towards Central Americans. Um, mm. And then we come here and a lot of us are discriminatory and racist towards Black people. And I think the definition of racism gets really murky at times. People are yeah. saying like, if you're not white, you can't be racist. I'm like, sure, we can t we can treat people like shit. How about that? Like we yeah. and sometimes we really do. We really do. So I really did want to discuss that to my best ability in that book. I think you did a really, really great job with it. And I think like it opens up the conversation because I like you're saying, like, I think for a lot of adults, when it comes to like, I think broadly, like the Latinx community, a lot of people didn't a lot of people who aren't in the community, and I think from what I've heard from friends who are, they just hadn't really thought about like racism and colorism as like political capital, I think maybe is a way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And I think totally. like the 2016 election, when you see those graphics that are like this percent of white women voted for Trump and this percentage of black people voted for Trump and this percentage of like Latino voters voted for Trump. And all of a sudden you're looking at these numbers and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? And I totally. think like with like they're just nationally maybe there hadn't been a conversation about like the inter politics of the Latino community and like the fact that it's all these different countries and people from different ethnicities and like that there are white Latino people and black yeah. Latino people and like I think 2016 was really instructive for a lot of people and the fact that you were able to put some of that into the book, I just think gives your young readers like a head start, right? Like it's not oh, everything, so. but like it's right, definitely it's like, hey, we can at least kind of like think, like plant that seed maybe if it's the first yes. time they're coming to it. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. We talked about race. We talked about sex. We're doing all the hard stuff first. I got There's oh, something yeah. <laughs> fun I want to do later. I want to talk about college admissions. Oh, because mm-hmm. that's a part of this book. And I'm pretty removed from college. I started college 20 years ago this year, which is insane to me. I cannot, I think I'm still 24. Um, I am not, but one of the big like plot points is everyone's trying to get into college in the book, or Mm -hmm. at least they have to write their college essays. And all of the kids choose the same prompt, which is like, what's the time where you had to overcome adversity or whatever, which like such a horrible prompt. Um, and they all, all the kids in the book are kids of color. They're black kids or Mexican kids. Um, mm-hmm. And these admission questions are essentially forcing kids to be like, here's my trauma. Value me for that. Yes. And I'm curious how you feel as an educator and a person who, you know, has relationships with young people. Is there ever like a world where that's not how kids get into college? And if not, or if so, right now, how we're doing it, what are we teaching young people about their worth and their trauma and like that relationship? Yep. Man, uh, I think I'll start by saying that like my background is like an educational, I studied to be a teacher. Um, I was so pissed off when I wrote this book because Operation Varsity Blues had just broke. Oh, and, that's, the, uh, yeah, that's the cheating you know? to get into college scandal, yeah. USC. Aunt Becky, and, mm-hmm. whatever I'm her name is. I'm a big Full House fan too. So it really hurt my feelings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I actually recently sat next to Olivia Jade, her daughter, at like oh, a shit. restaurant in, um, <laughs> in Soho with a friend. We were at brunch. And I looked at her and I don't think 
God bless her. I'm so sorry, Olivia, if you ever hear this, I don't think you will. I looked at her and I don't think I could, I concealed my rage enough because she stood up and left. And you did it. I know. I yeah. felt so powerful <laughs> because I remember that shit broke. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. You know what I mean? Like we all knew it was happening, but she sat down at the red table talk again. May God bless you, Olivia. Nothing personal. But she really was like, well, I didn't know that other people didn't have their parents help to get into college. Like I truly didn't know. And um, I like turned off the TV. I was like, this is such (laughs) bullshit. Um, and you know what? To her credit, she probably didn't know. She's lived a very sheltered life. Yeah. And I shouldn't be speaking on her specifically because it's a whole, you know, a whole issue. But I remember hearing that and thinking like, man, I hadn't started working on this book yet, but that's really what got me riled up mm. to write about that, where I was like, man, I have my friends and I were crying over writing our statements being like, and my dad left me and my parents came from a different country and we didn't eat anything but rice and beans. And I edit many personal statements now for former students or brothers of students where I'm like, I'm so sorry, honey, speak in the active voice and you need to to tell them exactly what happened because that's unfortunately the only way they're going to care. And I went, you know, I went to university and I sat down with a professor And he told me, we don't read half of those. We don't even read a quarter of those. If you're like, we put you through like a a numbers game. This is a UC system. And then whatever, who's on the cusp, we might pick one up and then we decide. And I was like, you know, and people don't know universities are for-profit models. They really are just like, who's paying us a lot, which is why we end Mm -hmm. up with lots of international students because I'm like, they're paying these crazy fees, right? So I wanted to discuss how like, For a lot of wealthy, rich, white children, they can just donate a library, make some calls, (laughs) shake some hands, and suddenly you're at USC, right? Right. And for someone like Leti or really someone like Ali, who I I loved Ali's character of like, I just want to go to school. I've been through something awful. Let me put all of it into this essay and then let me get in. And my one obstacle is still money, you know? Yeah. That shit pissed me off. Um, because it's so true. And I had many friends who are like, I wrote the statement of my life. I pimped out everything I've ever been through. And I'm, I still can't go to school because I don't have any money. And there's a bunch of kids who are like, I haven't been through anything. In fact, I didn't know that other people had to go through things to get in. My dad is going to donate $3 million to the sports team and I'm going to go to school. Right. I don't know the answer to like, how we make that better. I think the university system just needs a, our education system just needs a complete upheaval. But um, I really think they make these kids of color sweat. Like it's like a pony show of like, your dad died. Great. Like, tell us more. Um, Your mom abandoned you. Perfect. Uh, Here's a scholarship. Maybe, you know, Um, and then you get into these classes with folks. I remember when I went to Berkeley not, not, no diss to my cohort. I love my cohort, but there were other people where I was like, you're dumb. Like, what are we all doing in this room right now? Like you're dumb. And you know, you go to Berkeley, right? You go to Harvard, you go wherever. And so many kids of students of color I know have been like, I had the same experience. And then you realize we did not play the same game to get in here. Someone like Leti, who's acing all of her APs and doing all of her homework, can't compete with the Olivia Jades of the world because all they had to do was pay some money. Right. Right. So I just wanted young kids. And one of the biggest parts for me was Alexis's character. He has this whole monologue at the end. He's a Salvadorian kid who's like, your friend only gets in because she's pregnant. And I was like, then we internalize this shit. And we're like, I'm holier than thou because I've made it here and you haven't. Um, It's a messed up system. Um, I have no answers to how to make it better other than to like get back to the root, the big roots of our educational system, because it's big issue. Do you feel like students that you've helped with their personal statement that there is like, that it's like harmful for them to have to write about these things? Like, do, have you noticed that it like changes how they feel about themselves or their experiences in a way that's maybe like negative? Yes. Um, I, I read this really important piece when I was in college about coming out as undocumented. Um, mm. And I feel it's like that sometimes where like, 
what's the largest obstacle you've ever been through? And I sit down with kids and I'm like, what's the largest obstacle you've ever been through? And they go, oh, like I didn't make the soccer team. And that was hard. Um, and I know their parents and I'm like, right. okay, tell me more. Right. And then we eventually get to family stuff and I'm like, oh, so you came here unaccompanied, you know, you migrated here unaccompanied and the largest obstacle you've been through is you didn't get on the soccer team. And that's not me pulling, right. That's us having a conversation. Right. And then they have a moment where they're like, I guess that was really hard. And I'm like, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing that. But, you know, having that moment feels so inorganic. I'm like, that's a moment you should have with your family. I would argue with a therapist, if we can get there, like right. to say, like, I've, right. I've been through something. And now suddenly, perhaps they're already aware, you have to write a 300 or word less um, statement on like, how potentially you immigrated to the country alone, how you live in a food desert, how you were raised by a single parent, how your dad has a gambling addiction, whatever it is, right? right. Um, and I'm like, yeah, there has to be a better way. Because, you know, I don't think I feel that way if that's what everybody was doing. But that's not what everybody is doing. And we all have different starting places. So I think when we're doing this trauma pony show for just specific kids to be like, should you or shouldn't you get into Berkeley? It right. feels really um, voyeuristic like to say yeah. the least, it feels nasty. And I struggle with that all the time because there are times where I help kids with their statements. And I'm like, you know, if, if you fully believe that your largest struggle was not getting into the soccer team, give me 300 words and we'll fix it. But there are other times where I'm like, I just, I just, we shouldn't be asking you this question. We just yeah. shouldn't be asking you this question. It just feels so unsafe. You know, it's just it like is. for like for the kid, like like you're saying, like it's like you have this moment where you realize something about your life that maybe like you weren't ready to realize or like exactly. ready to grapple with. And then if you, let's say you do get into a college that is predominantly white and it's it is a Cal or a Stanford or whatever. And then the whole time you're there, you're like, oh, I'm only here because this hor like because I had this horrible experience or like because of mm -hmm. what happened to mm -hmm. my family or what happened to me or whatever, like. And that's that's where you get people being like, oh, well, you're only you're uh, you're a affirmative action, whatever. Totally. Like you only got in because because of your sob story where it's like, sure, it's it's easy to internalize that because you were told you had to write about that to get in. Totally. Right. Like it's like that's the part of it that I think makes it easy for young people to believe that that is their worth because we're telling them if you want to get in, you have to write about this thing. And then when they do get in, it's only be like, I don't think people think like, oh, my SAT scores, right? Like they're like, oh, it's because this thing happened to me or that thing. And I'd never really thought about that process in that way, mostly because it was so long ago for me. I don't really remember what it felt like, but in reading it in the book, I was immediately like, this is super duper fucked. It is. And I like in the first few chapters, I think Letty says it like, I don't want to get into Berkeley because I'm pregnant. I want to get in because I'm smart. And her teacher is like, oh, reality check. This is a reality check moment for you. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, misinformation around affirmative action. That shit does not exist. Like, and people right. really think it's like, oh, there's a bunch of Latinos at Berkeley because of affirmative action. I'm like, are there a lot of Latinos at Berkeley? Can we look at the yeah. numbers right now? Um, right, right. Yeah. Well, affirmative, I, I mean, affirmative action is like the colloquial way people say it to you. Like, yeah, oh, you're, no, an, you're an affirmative action. Yes. Um, no, I mean that too. Admission. People are so funny. Yeah. yeah. People, people are stupid. Um, yeah. But what's not stupid, hard shift, is the fucking title of this book. It oh. is brilliant. Can <laughs> you talk you. about it? Was it always the title? Was it something that was hard to find? Did you find it? Did your editor find it? Like what happened? The title no. is Shut Up, This is Serious. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, the title, that's so funny. I was just talking about this with someone it's last night. It's not just me. Also, when I posted about this book, the like two times I posted about it, someone, at least one person, oftentimes other authors have DM'd me to be like, that is a great title. Oh, like it's you. like this is like one of the best titled books. Just like it grabs oh. you. It's just it's oh. such a grab. Thank Anyways, you. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're fine. Uh, I'm awful. I'm awful. I'm awful with titles. I couldn't title <laughs> shit if I wanted to. And the book sat untitled forever. And I, when I was on sub, my agent was like, so great. So excited. We need a different title. And what um, was the working title? 
the first title was called Intersections. Makes no sense in the got scheme it, of the book. It. Yeah, not good. Second title was pulled from the first line, which was actually a nod to Catcher in the Rye, which was, if you really knew about it, scrapped it. And my editor, and then Harper was like, we don't want that title. Um, so I sat with a friend and we spitballed ideas for weeks, 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 <laughs> weeks of like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And we had listened to Honestly Nevermind, the Drake album. Ugh. And <laughs> he was like, damn, that would have been a great title. And I was so upset because I was like, no, it really would have been. And he yeah. was like, well, what, what, what do we like about it? Let's like, let's sit down and think. And I said, I like that there's a comma. Yes. <laughs> and um, he was like, okay, okay, got it. So we went through this list and we were like literally allowed being like this one, this one. And then he said, shut up, comma, this is serious. And I went, ooh, that's good. Because that's it sounds good. like something Belen would say. And then the biggest question is, okay, now who says it? And for a long time, we thought Letty would say it. But I was like, Letty would not even say shut up if you paid her. Like someone else yeah. needs to say it. So it's um, it's Belen's sister who's like, you're just fucking up. You don't know what you're doing. You need to get it together. This is a really serious time of your life. And I've gotten many compliments. What's so funny is I don't like the, I don't like the title, but you know what? I don't think I would have been satiated with any title because I'm mm. too close to the book. Yeah. So when my marketing team was like, oh, we love it. That's perfect. I said, you know what sells. You know what looks good on the cover. You know what to do. You know what? I'm not above you. That's fine. We'll call it that. And it was yeah. born. I love it. I love it. Also, the cover. Love the cover. Uh, we have you. the Oakland Cranes, the Dinos, as my kids call them, and what I call yeah. them as kids. Um, the Bart Train, of course. We have Belen and Letty on the cover. Did you have anything to do with the cover, or was it an artist that like kind of took the book and just tell yeah. us about that process? I feel so privileged that my team was like, what do you want to do? And I put together what has to be the ugliest Google slide deck of like <laughs> ideas. And I said, Oh no, like, here you go. And um, they, they were like, cool. Got it. And it took months. Harper was on strike. So I was like, damn, this oh. shit is going to take a minute. And my editor or my designer, uh, Joel came up with this list of folks. And I was on the phone with my friend, Alberto, shout out Alberto. And I was like, all right, what do we do? And he was like, I like this guy. I like this guy. But we both were like, our Kaku Johnson is our top choice. And I don't know why in my head I was like, he's not going to do this shit. Like, he's not going to do it. He's so cool. He's a New Yorker cartoonist. You know, he's a New Yorker illustrator. And when we finally got him, I was like, oh, shit, like, this is like actually going to happen. And he came up with these four covers. And I day of 580 was shut down. It was flooded with rain. I get to, I got to work an hour late. And I put them, I was so pissed at my students, wasn't even their fault. And I just was like, you know what, we're not doing math today. Here are my book covers. Which one do we want? And they were like, oh my God. And they all voted and they all voted on that one because they were like, oh, they did. it's familiar. And it's, mm -hmm. someone said, and it's sad. And I went, okay, that's perfect. And we went with it. We went through a round of revisions. Um, our Kaku is so talented. He just won the Whiting Award. I feel like we grabbed him. I'm like, damn, I wonder if we'll ever get him again at such an opportune time. He's such a cool guy. He had this novella out called No One Else. So talented, so brilliant. He had this viral New Yorker cover this year of like a bodega cap. And um, my team was really gracious with me. I said, no offense. And I really don't. I mean it. I just didn't want the YA of someone's face and then some yeah. text. That just was not yeah. for me. I actually said, I don't want a face on it. But again, it's like, I don't know what sells. And they were able to to just... You sort of have a, a face, but bit. like not really. It's not yeah. the center of the thing. I like that we don't see Letty's face at all. I was like, that's Me too. perfect. There's a lot of movement and directionality. Um, my designer did the, the text himself and we got some feedback around that. I think the palette is great. I was like, I want like the We Believe Warriors era colors on the cover. We want some orange <laughs> and blue. You know what I mean? I was like, that's what I want. And it looked beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. <clears throat> this is the part I've been saving. The acknowledgments. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> fucking love reading acknowledgments. And you gave us like eight pages of acknowledgments. I did. An extremely gratifying experience for an acknowledgement lover like me. 
First of all, I need you to talk about why it was important for you to include, like to do such a vast, expansive acknowledgement section. I love acknowledgement sections. Every time there's not an acknowledgement section in a book, I get a little pissed off because I'm like, how did you have the opportunity that you didn't take? Or I'll take a paragraph. I'll take a paragraph. It's also because I think I'm nosy and I'm like, who Who's in your same. life? Same. <laughs> like, who are you Hard talking same. about? Who's Matt? You know, like, I want to yeah. know more about that. Um, so it was that. But like, truly, I just was like, I have so many people to thank. And when I pitched it to my editor, I was like, Jen, I don't think you understand. It's going to be <laughs> long. I could, I would think the air I'm breathing right now, if I had the opportunity, and I maybe did, who knows. Um, and she said, we'll make, we'll make it work, you know, like, do what you need to do. I just, it's my favorite part. Sometimes I read them before I read the book, but I'm always afraid I'm going to spoil something. So See, I don't do it before because I read it after. So no matter how I felt about the book, I always get my favorite part at the end because sometimes yeah. I have to read things that I don't like. So I'm like, well, so let me good. just get to the acknowledgements because that is like the, that's the dessert for me. Yes. Yes. It was that. It was like 10 pages of me just thinking like shapes. Um, I also read a number of acknowledgement sections to prepare for writing mine. Like I studied them. I was in there mm. reading them. I thought about an author's note. I was like, no, everything I, I say, I'm going to throw into this acknowledgement section. Um, thanked every writer who I was like, I read your work once and it made me feel good. Tried to, I've tried to send them all the copy, a copy of the book if they answered my email. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, every author, every shape, every like spider, I think, I think my cat in it. Like I think my teacher's, yeah. I love acknowledgement uh, sections. You also thanked my favorite warrior, Baron Davis. Oh, no. And so I'm very yes. curious about why you thanked specifically Baron. Yeah. You, you thanked Baron Davis and the Warriors and then also Damian Lillard, Oakland boy. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious yeah. why you specifically thanked Baron Davis. Oh, man. Thank you for these. These are good questions. When I was in <laughs> the fourth really grade, in the, in the dude, this is in the, you're in the thick of Oakland right now. When I was in the fourth grade, Baron Davis's grandmother had a contest. It's the We Believe Warriors era. They were yes. like, write us an essay about someone who is impactful in your life. And I was a writer since I was a kid. And my fourth grade teacher, or maybe my fifth grade teacher was like, you should do this. And I carried a clipboard around during recess and was like, blah, 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 blah. And I submitted it. And they were like, hey, you made our finalists. We're going to take you to the Marriott Hotel um, to the top <laughs> floor. You get a TV interview and then we're going to take you to a game. And I went to the game and I was on the teleprompter. My uncle called me. He was like, my niece, she's on TV. I don't know why she's at the Warriors game right now. And they gave me this like Baron Davis jersey. They put my name on the back. I have a Baron Davis bobblehead on my book on my bookcase. And uh, we went down to the to the floor. And I remember being like, I was literally like nine or 10. They gave me an extra small jersey, went down to my ankles around the most like gargantuan people I'd seen in my life. So Baron Davis, wish I could give him a copy of the book. What a guy. Um, or I just was like, man, I remember being in the fourth grade being like a basketball player. I didn't even, I don't think I, I didn't win, but I was like a basketball player, read my essay. That's crazy. And then for Damian Lillard, I mean, he wears that zero, not as a zero, but like, he's like, that's an O for Oakland. Um, and that's how they announce him, right? Um, and he's no longer on the Blazers. I think he was traded maybe to the Bucks. I might be wrong. Um, but yeah, I just was like anyone who's standing up for Oakland like that for real. But Baron Davis, as since I was a kid, I was like, that's my favorite um, athlete. <laughs> Still know not much about basketball. I've learned quite a bit, but like, I'm always <laughs> like, yeah, that's the one. I love that. I love Baron Davis. Big Warriors fan. I, but my guy besides Baron Davis was Matt Barnes. I had the biggest mm -hmm. crush on Matt Barnes. And for my 21st birthday, my brother's friend, some like girl he was friends with, who he's like not even friends with anymore. She had a connect to him and he wrote me a birthday card. And it was like, dear Tracy, thanks so much for being such a big fan. Like appreciate it. Um, like Matt Barnes. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like I, I hold on to that forever. Like, I talk about that forever. This is like pre- all the Temecula Matt Barnes shit. This was like when Matt Barnes was just like a kind of like a nobody but good on the Warriors, mm. um, like back in the like Andres Beanrins days. Um, but okay, another thing in your acknowledgments is that you have a playlist for the book. Oh, yes, which yes, I do. It, 
if there's a link to it on your website, but I'll also link to that and everything else we talk about in the show notes. And I look, I looked at it. I listened to some of it. It is the most fucking Oakland <laughs> kid who grew up in Oakland. It's like the far side. Not that they're from Oakland, but it's just like, it's like <laughs> yeah. so Oakland, like D'Angelo. It's like yeah, all, the, I'm like, real. are kids still listening to the same shit I used no. to listen to back then? <laughs> uh no they're not and I actually did made that and put in a lot of music in the book just to be like I'm again I'm a nosy reader if you put a recipe in a book at least once I'm gonna try making it yeah um so I wanted kids to be like who's Tony 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 like why is it spelled like that who's Anita Baker um because I really did grow up listening to 102.9 and it gave me the ear I have today like I have in all of my favorite music comes out of the 70s my favorite song growing up as a kid was I want to know by Joe like that's such a strange thing to say that's Um, such a weird song I know for a kid to be like that was the last dance in middle school like at all the dances I love like Luther Vandross take you out and I got when I got to be older I was like that's such a weird thing for me to have been like, I can't wait till this like Anita Baker song comes on. Like yeah. it's so strange. So I, 102. I did make 102.9 is so funny. It was, I, I was like, that's such a funny. Cause when I was a kid, it was like 94.9 and 106, like Camille. Mm-hmm. Like those are like, like hip hop stations or whatever. And 102.9 was definitely like what my dad would play. In the your, car. Your, my mom was listening to yeah. I was like growing up listening to Patrice Russian and like tower of power to this day. And uh, I really did make that and in- included all of that so that kids could be like, who the fuck is she talking about? I was like, let me put yeah. you on. It's cool. Like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And you're a Leo. When's your birthday? Uh, August 13th. Yeah. Okay. I'm July 22nd, but I'm so late at night that I'm zero degree Leo. But I didn't know that. I found Whoa. out I, I found that out as an adult. I thought my whole life I was a cancer. And then I found out really traumatizing. Uh, oh, that's a big difference. <laughs> anyways, yeah. I spent a lot of time in your acknowledgments. You also list so many authors that you love that are my favorites and guests of the mm-hmm. show. And I was like, this list is like basically the stacks reading list as an acknowledgement. So that was mm-hmm. really exciting for me. I was like, I love yeah. all of these people too. I have to ask you about how do you write? How many hours a day? How often do you listen to music as you're writing? Do you have snacks and beverages? Where are you? Rituals? Like, as we're doing this interview at my office, I can't write at my desk. Shout out my friends, Layla and Mo. They got me this ergonomic keyboard. I'm still trying to learn how to use it. Uh, (sighs) But here I'm editing. I'm writing exclusively, like, on my laptop on a couch um, or on the floor or in my living room or in someone else's living room. Um, This is a stationary place for me to revise and edit. Uh, Snacks and beverages. Yeah, I have my one emotional support coke zero a day yes Um, my new thing is oh my god i I almost don't want to say it but i will because i'm like is it gonna sell out the nilo coconut water i've put so many people on to this damn coconut water you can get it at berkeley bowl if you're ever back up here how do you spell nilo n-i-l-o and i swear to god i don't i don't know how many people are going to listen to this please be be mindful because i'm really it's a scarcity out here i went to berkeley bowl the other day and i was like I want all, I paid $70 for coconut water. I was like, I want all of them. And they went all and they gave me a box and I want, I want literally all of them. And I cleared out the shelf. Um, popcorners. Wow. Okay. Popcorners. Me and popcorners have a, a, we have a specific flavor right or just all of them. You know, kettle corn, that's my ride or die. Um, yeah, but I okay. had the cinnamon sugar one and I was like, oh. bro, this is decadent right now this is crazy um (laughs) other than that like true to my mexican identity we're eating a lot of takis but for real i can't handle it anymore i have ibs like i really it'll take me out it'll kill me at this point okay but on a day where i'm like you know what who cares we're all gonna die yeah i'll do that (laughs) um but that's how i write do hours a day um when I'm working with friends, we'll do timed sessions, which is good because then we, or, or else we won't shut the fuck up, you know, like we'll just yeah. gonna talk forever. So I'll do a time session. Um, I try to just work like this scene or this chapter per day. Um, that's usually the goal, which has been interesting for revising my second book, but yeah. What about a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Environment. Ooh, okay. That's a good one. As a teacher, it's always embarrassing to admit that or like any miss because I'm supposed to know like phonics and shit. Um, Uh. But yeah, environment, (laughs) can't do it. 
Um, what comes next for you? We're talking today. This is sort of a fucked up question to ask you because today is your actual pub day when we're <laughs> talking. So it's sort of fucked up to ask you like what's next. But do you know what comes next for you? Yes, I signed a two book deal with Harper, oh, so I have another book coming out. Uh, we're hope—I don't know when—we're hopeful for twenty twenty-five, sometime in twenty twenty-five. Trying Ooh. to skirt around that election uh, situation uh, happening. Uh, book two, very different, very different, um, alarmingly different. I would say, still a very realistic fiction genre. It does not take place in Oakland, which I never, I never thought I would get out of here. Um, but it's been hard for that reason of like, can I do this? Is this correct? Like, am I making mm. a mistake? This isn't my home. This isn't my place. That's what comes next. Before all that, we have a launch event this weekend that's sold out, which is so stupidly crazy. Yeah, it's so fun. So today I'm just going to pop into bookstores and sign books, um, which is exciting. Yeah. I love Um, this for you. Yeah, but that's what comes next. Book two and then book three eventually. I'm trying to stick in YA for a little bit before I think I might have to make a pivot. Some some of the shit I want to write, I think, is just too sad from what I've been told. Got so, it. Yeah. Kids need sad shit, too. Um, I think so. But but whatever you want, we'll just come with you wherever you go. Uh, for people who love Shut Up, This is Serious, what would you recommend to them that's maybe in conversation with your work? I keep them all on my desk. Um, okay. So I'm like looking at my, my stack. Ghost by Jason Reynolds. Uh, Jason mm. Reynolds is it for me where I'm like, yeah. I don't think anyone is going to do it ever like you. <laughs> I don't know if anybody from the MacArthur Genius Grant would listen, but you guys are late. Uh, yeah. I was just listening yeah. to his uh, podcast with you on Ain't Burned All the Bright where he was like, I want an oh, off yeah. in the Pulitzer Foundation. And I was like, they should make one just for you. Like just no one me. else. Just for you. You should get that. Uh, yeah. Ghost is the, one of the craziest books I've ever read. Makes me cry every single, every single oh. time I read that first chapter. I'm like, I can't believe one. I cry because I'm like, that's so sad. So crazy. And two, I'm like, I can't believe someone can write like that. That's insane. <laughs> um, yeah. The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo. Um, she's a quiltry author. She's one of the reasons I took my deal with them where I was like, yo, mm. your people want this book. You're it. Like, that's right. crazy. I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter by Erika El Sanchez. Such a good book. Um, my my mentor Raquel's book, Hamun Fuentes, Fell in Love with the Universe, um, in terms of sex and sex education. So good. Um, and not like thematically, but on the cover, the cover of this book was pulled almost directly from Killing and Dying by Adrian Tomina, graphic mm. novel, collection of short stories. Um he is one of the best writers I think I've ever read. And I said, I said to my design team, I want this cover. I know we can't, this is someone else's cover, but I want that something like this. And they really Mm. pulled it off um, where I was like cinematic and angled and sad. Let's make that happen somehow. So I'll throw that one in Um, homie by Denez, um, Denez Smith, their new poetry collection is coming out this year. And anytime I'm like, how do you do anything with language? I'm pulling Denise out of the, <laughs> the stack. Um, so talented. So yeah. talented. I could talk forever about Denise. I think Denise is also it um, right yeah. now. So I'd say those. I'm probably forgetting a few. Um, but those those are the ones for right now that I'd say confidently. I love that. Okay, last question. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh my God. Um, I don't know. Maybe my parents, like (laughs) I would say like my parents are both alive and my mother has read this book. I'd say my parents, because I'm like, I'm trying to, it's an homage for sure. And other than that, I just want like (laughs) the trend on the, the kids on TikTok are calling them hot Cheeto girls. Like I need them to read the book of like these Latina girls who wear sweatpants over their jeans and walk the mile and like eat hot Cheetos with these long acrylic nails. I'm like, I wrote this book for For you and these big hoop earrings. Like I wrote this book so that you could feel seen and loved. Um, I'd say that. Um, And in terms of an author, I'm too, I'm too shy. I'd be so afraid if someone I loved read that book, like, like, uh, I'd be so afraid, but I, I would say that it's a nod to, to that community, my parents, and and to those those girls specifically. Please read my book. Oh, 
I love that so much. All right, folks, you can get Shut Up, This Is Serious wherever you get your books. It is out in the world now. Carolina, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Carolina Eekstaff for joining the show. I'd also like to say thank you to Kelly Haberstroth for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for January is Erasure by Percival Everett. And we will discuss that book back here on Wednesday, January 31st with our guest, Zach Stafford. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, you can follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And of course, you can always check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 